0: We're gonna talk about the oldest company in software. Can you guess which one it is?
1: Welcome to Tradeoffs, where product habits, Heaton Shaw and Well's Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they
0: talk about hiring frameworks. And it's not even type of engineer, but what behaviors are related to success in the environment. Microsoft buying graphs. For some reason, the impression is it's easier than the other tools, but definitely it's fallen out of fashion for most of us.
1: And the ease of building software. It doesn't necessarily pay off very quickly, but it pays off most momentously over time. I'm in Boston the rest of this week, and then I'm finally going home.
0: That's not home. That's halfway home. You're in a halfway house. You're in a halfway house. Got
1: it. I'm in a halfway house. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the episode. And I'm in my halfway (laughs) house in Austin, Texas right now. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to give a shout out. Um, we don't have any sponsors, but this episode is going to be sponsored by the residence in in Austin. It is fantastic. Is it? I have a kitchen. I have like everything. It's like I can set up this whole system. It's great. I'm loving it. But how are you doing, man? How's your week going? I'm good. I'm still in the
0: same spot. I don't travel like you very much. Uh, week's been good, lots of lots of things going on in the world, which I'm sure we'll dive into, but yeah, I think uh, we're we're hiring a lot, so that's always fun. and I know you folks are always hiring as well. so
1: hiring so many people. I got into a debate recently, Peter and I Peter and I so here's the here's the here's the comedic story, but it's not that that interesting, but it's funny kind of comedic. I'm just finishing a workout and I like, we're, we're kind of like going nuts right now. Like we're hiring across the board. Like there's just so much stuff going on. I am in the most zooms per day that I have been in this entire like quarantine. And so I finally like get away, I go do a workout. We're texting as I'm like doing my cool down. And basically he, he goes, we're talking about a candidate and he goes, yeah, but it took him 30 hours to follow up with me it's like, we're not even into the second step of the interview process. It's literally like I just introed Peter. It's over the weekend too, which is always funny. And I just remember I got on the phone with Peter and I was just like, dude, come on. Like, let the guy respond to you and like, let's figure this out. And then if there's a bunch of little things, you know, maybe let's hold that against him, but not. And then I just threw it out on Twitter this week and it's really kind of interesting. Most people are like, "Oh, it's not a big deal," but then there's a couple of people who are like, "No, it's a huge deal. You should like really like disqualify someone for it." So, I don't know. What's what's your take? Should people should people follow up when it comes to interviews? What was your take? I'm sure you've been in this argument before as well cuz it's a very common one.
0: A couple things. So, there's a formal interview process and then there's an informal interview process. Mm. So, the the way that I've treated these things from my own experiences when I'm in informal interview processes, what I mean by that is casually talking to, let's say like a sales leader when I don't need one yet, right? But I'm casually talking to them and sometimes that might turn into something more. I typically find a way for them to say that there's a next step Mm. and us to align on that. And to me, that's an acceptable follow-up. So in that context, it's like, oh, I'm gonna put together some thoughts based on what we talked about just to kind of see if we're aligned and see if we should continue the conversation, right? I don't say that. The other person usually says it because I want them to kind of reflect on the opportunity if there is one or if it makes sense right now. And I'm usually sharing a lot in those informal convos. So for those, to me, you got to keep the informal convos moving if you want to entertain the possibility of working with this person because it's informal, right? So I just want to get that out of the way because like those, I always am able in control and have the next steps. Yeah. In the candidate process where you're interviewing someone, I think you have to be extremely explicit about follow-ups, even more so than in informal processes, because most of the follow-ups, in my opinion, should be on the company. You are in our formal process of hiring people, which means we might be looking at other people, probably are, and we have our own ATS or some Airtable or Google Sheet to manage it. And that's basically kind of the starting point for me. And so when we get into debates like, when should the candidate follow up? Did they follow up or not? My big question is just, are we gonna disqualify them because they didn't follow up or they didn't follow up properly or in all that? And if if so, cool. Let's talk about that. If not, why are we talking about that? Mm. That that's the kind of the way I've broken this down because I've gotten in similar debates about a candidate in particular, or candidates and weighing like whether they should move forward just based on whether they followed up and one candidate followed up quickly, another didn't. I don't know how much substance there is in that conversation.
1: Yeah. I think to me, it's more of, this is how I explained it to Peter. I don't know if you've ever watched How I Met Your Mother, but there's a scene where the one of the male protagonists goes on a date with a couple of um, potential you know, girlfriends, basically, and there's two that he goes on a date with and one in this particular scene. And one is like a Rhodes Scholar, you know, saving babies in Africa is like a like everything this guy has wanted or at least has claimed he's wanted. And then the other has none of those things. They actually don't align on values or anything like that. But the Rhodes Scholar person didn't reach for the check and then the other woman reached for the check, right? And he's basically deciding, like, oh, should I should I go on a second date, you know, with with whomever? And it's like, oh, the picture perfect person is there, but they didn't like reach for the check and all of a sudden, like, he's just is not considering going on a date with them. And so it's just it's just kind of like this funny, I think there's these dogmatic things that ultimately, you know, confuse us and they ultimately make it so that, yeah, maybe it's a thing, maybe it's something that we should worry about, but it's just a lot of people have never been told that this is what they should do. And maybe that sucks, but that's reality. There's a lot of people who, you know, maybe they're just not as interested and they don't know what the process is, um, which could be two separate things. And so I don't know, it just gets interesting. I think it's, I like what you said about your process moving it along that resonated with me with me a lot. And I don't know, I think it's just really interesting. And, and the other debate, the sub debate we got into was, well, what if it's a salesperson or like a support person or something like that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's an end to this conversation, except I don't think it should be the reason, unless that's the policy. And if it's that important to you, um, it's probably going to be difficult to find folks. I still want to be judgmental, to be honest.
0: Right. And yeah. like, I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And that's why I just, I just go back to what I said, which is like, how much does this impact what we're going to do with choosing? And is it that we're a company that we have values where follow-ups are really important? And so we need to make sure that every candidate we talk to is following up quickly, right? I mean, that's, there's, there's some reasonable level of like, oh, if they're going to be a salesperson, an account rep, or whatever, they need to do that. And we would expect that. And that's almost part of your criteria. And that's why I say it's kind of on the company uh, to figure this out in many ways one is like next steps tend to be on the company most of the time when it comes to interviews so that's one thing to keep in mind so who should be following up first honestly if you want a great candidate experience it's probably you the company should be following up as fast as you can and that's one of the pitfalls of recruiting right and one of the issues another way to kind of another perspective or you know slightly different take on it is just like honestly like who cares like, like yeah. who actually cares? Like, let's go evaluate this person on what we need to evaluate them on. And again, if this is one of the criteria, great. So usually these conversations come up because no one's made it a criteria and either it needs to be or it doesn't need to be. And if it doesn't need to be, then we shouldn't be like trying to measure people on their follow-up. Yeah. If it needs to be, then yeah, we should absolutely be weighing that in because it's such a big deal for the role they're going to be in. We want someone who after every call follows up because in sales, you're supposed to follow up after every call and that's a really should almost be ingrained in somebody where they just do that. But the thing is like to your point, I would say 20-30% of people at best naturally do this. Yeah. And and that's at best. My guess is much lower. Um but let's just say of the pool of candidates that, you know, tech companies are hiring, yeah. It's 20-30% and
1: that's where it's at. No, I I do think that I think it can be additive, but I don't think it needs to be like deductive. Does that make sense? Like, I think that I'm always impressed when we're interviewing someone and they kind of take control of the conversation. So like taking control of the process a little bit, not, not in like a railroad, the process or anything, but just more of like, Hey, I just want to recap. So this is a step A, step B, step C makes sounds great. Cool. And then they follow up with me in email and kind of like reiterate, especially like for like very conscientious roles. And I think it's very additive, but I don't think it has to be one of those things that you know, if that's the thing that determines why someone shouldn't move forward or not, like like you said, there should be a huge reason from a company perspective of why that's so important. But yeah, I think like, I was just thinking, I, I would tell people to follow up. Like I, you know, anyone that is searching for a job, I always say like, hey, like make sure you follow up. It just shows that you're doing X, Y, Z because that's what, you know, frankly, you know, my parents and my teachers told me, right? And I think that there's just not a lot of people who have had that conversation. And so it, it just does get interesting.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it has a lot to do with having the conversation. Yeah,
1: and for you, totally right. just kind of curious, like, how do you set up your hiring process? Like, I guess at a high level, like, what's your framework? Is it first call, second call, project, etc.? Like, how? What? What are those like steps that you've set up?
0: We do something really weird that's been working, and weird in the sense of it's non-standard. And this is specifically for engineering right now, because mm-hmm. uh, that's where we're hiring the most. Is Basically, we are taking a piece of the puzzle of engineering, uh, which is planning, because we we do a lot of planning before we write code, and giving people planning exercises. One of two: if they're more front endy, there's a to do list app that we describe, and then they kind of plan out. Uh, if it's back endy, it's actually a link shortener that they're kind of thinking through. So these are things that the scope is shouldn't be more than an hour, but it could be one to two hours. Let's say so. Don't have to pay them for it because it's part of the interview process for us. It's the project. But then, so what we do and what we prefer, and we're, we're working through this because this works for inbound candidates. For outbound candidates, I think you need to do a phone screen first bef- because to convince them, talk to them, et cetera, before you do this and get them committed. But for people who are coming inbound, our goal is to send as many of these planned requests out to candidates, have as many as possible come back, and then... As many of those as make sense, they get on a call with our head of engineering, who is either their re- direct report or one level up, and he reviews the plan with them. And it's it's about a two hour call, 90 minutes to two hours, where he's trying to figure out if he can work with them, basically. And so he scores the plan from zero to 10 before he meets with them. If they meet a certain threshold, let's say five or six, unless there's an exception, he'll continue forward. Otherwise, he'll send them a polite, you know, rejection email. And then he gets on the call, schedules the call, gets on the call. And then from there, we determine whether they move on to the next step. There's been times when his seven or eight went down to a five or six after the call. So we log that as well. There's been times where a five or six turned into a seven or eight. What he's trying to figure out is this is the type of planning meeting, roughly, let's say 30 to 45 minutes of that call that he would normally do with an engineer on the team or with a team lead or with a group of engineers. So he wants to mm. give p- these people that experience and assess their ability on a number of different levels on working in the environment we've created on engineering. So we're very environment specific and we don't focus on culture until we determine whether this person can be successful in, in our environment or not. By then mm. we're already figuring out culture, but it, the you know people do specific culture interviews, we do too. Those don't come until we've assessed if they can perform in the environment we're in. Because even the best engineer might not be into planning, right? Best meaning aptitude, skill set. And if yeah. they're not, we would usually rather take, not usually in every case, take an engineer who's not as skilled or experienced and instead take on kind of people who are less experienced and skilled, but are really solid on the planning and can work with us. And he's evaluating communication, feedback how they react to him, things like that. And I think like the implication and what excites me the most is when we talk to candidates that ex- accepted or went through the process, re- got rejected after the plan, even before the plan, frankly, they are very like happy with us and feel like, and they, we've heard verbatim things like, this is a very refreshing experience compared to code challenges that I'm used to. And we just feel like there's no other way to do it. And we know that goes against some norms that recruiters have, which is they like to do phone screens for everybody. We yeah. actually prefer phone screens for people who are, we are specifically targeting, so to speak to hire. So the, you know, passive process while an active process, when someone comes in is very much like, here's the plan, you decide if you want to do it for us or not, or not the plan, but the project uh, to kind of plan out, you decide. And if they do it, we'll evaluate and go from there. I I'm excited to bring that process to other parts uh, of the company Mm. as we need to scale. I think sales is an exception because you can't really do that in sales. So that type of hiring is going to be very different and much more traditional cohorted sales training type of model uh, and then see what happens because that's usually the best you can do in those processes, except certain personality tests and stuff that I know folks like HubSpot are big on, which makes sense. Um, But in engineering, that's how we do it. And I think in other areas like
1: marketing and 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 even customer
0: success and stuff, we can do similar things. It wouldn't be a planning project, but it might be something different.
1: So just to be clear, they apply or they're outbound. Outbound you get on the phone with them. Hey, let's jam, blah, 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 blah. Inbound or post outbound call, you send them a planning project, or is that actually part of the interview? So is there is there an hour to two hours where they have to do the planning project and then they talk to Yeah. Yeah. That's what planning
0: project like, first.
1: It's they do reviewed. That solo. They do that yeah. like on their own time, on their basically. Own. Okay. Yeah.
0: And they produce a document or whatever method they want. Usually it's a document Got it. where they've written out a plan on how to build that thing.
1: Okay. And and they're they not writing can...
0: code unless they want to, which they shouldn't, but in some cases we've gotten people writing some code uh, just because that was part of their planning process. But it yeah. helps us understand kind of how to meet them where they are and see mm. if we can get them to the place where they need to be to be successful in our company and in got particular it. in our engineering environment so it's it's almost like environment fit is what i call it not sure. culture fit and
1: they can take like you give it to them they can get back to you in a week they can get back to you whenever or it we're, we're not matter.
0: we're not setting hard deadlines on that because we understand that while people are in in particular active recruiting process they've got a lot going on including yeah. an existing job in most cases so mm. we're pretty open about how long, obviously, if it's like a couple of weeks later, it might not be relevant anymore, but that's on them.
1: Like, is it just the planning? Like, tell me a little bit more about the planning project. Like what's, if you can, like what's, what's like the actual prompt for the link shortener or the, the front end piece.
0: It's a half a page description of the project, like a description of what we want to build and a request. And there's, there's like tests within it. Right There's things okay. that are missing. So we they, some people might email back and ask questions. Some people might be like, oh, this was missing in, when they kind of put out their plan. But it's p- specifically designed around understanding how they think about planning and how they think mm-hmm. about laying out their work, um, the work they're going to do before they actually do it. And on engineering, mm-hmm. what we found is that the planners are much more likely to hit their their own deadlines and their own yeah. dates. And that's extremely important to us, at least. I know that sounds... Like it should be important to every organization, but I have not found that to be true.
1: No, it's not. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. And then after the director of engineer, whoever they report to, interview, they do a culture interview. Then we like, go through
0: the rest of the process. Then, then, then okay. it's just the rest of the process. Can they work with other engineers? So one or two engineers also talk to them that they would be working with potentially. Uh, they might it. talk to our head of HR, uh, and they they might talk. They'll definitely talk to one of the founders too.
1: Got it. That's interesting. Yeah, we do something. So Sort of similar, I think. We we do an initial screen, and then they have a hiring manager conversation, and then we do a challenge. Which I guess maybe this is a traditional process. But then you look at it, and the challenge is very role dependent, and they'll do like a loop. So they'll do they'll present the challenge, and this is not for engineering. This is for everything but engineering. Engineering does a kind of a typical coding challenge, but then post engineering or post challenge, they do like two to four one-on-ones with different folks and then there's always a final interview with me. Yeah, and that's that's kind of worked well, but I like the idea of like checking instead of having like an all-encompassing, you know, kind of like trying to have a project that checks a lot of boxes, having something of like we're going to square in on this is the most important thing or this is the one thing and then all these other sub things fall underneath it, which I'm sure you'll, you know, you'll actually see cuz if they can do this, then their technical skills are probably pretty good because you're actually going to see that. And actually in the director of engineering interview, they're going to be able to see it. So yeah, that's cool. I like that. It's been working.
0: And again, that's the feedback cool. loop we care about a lot, which is what do people say about the experience? And so we optimize for that. Right? Yeah. We want them to have a good experience and also us get what we want right out of the assessment. Yeah. It's been the, the quotes have been like surprising in terms of the positivity and Somebody on the team today, basically, he's an engineer, felt like he's one of our more skeptical engineers in general. And he actually said, hey, I want to introduce people I know to the company because and the way I introduce them and tell them that they should consider joining is, hey, just just talk to our head of engineering. When you talk to Mm -hmm. him, you're going to feel like this is the person you want to work with. This is the person that you think will support you and give you a great uh, sort of experience with the company and in your job. And that just happened like the other day when, when he was on, we were on a company wide call and we're talking about recruiting and interviewing and all that. And kind of, he brought that up. So whatever it is, it's, it's the magic that works with the team that we have, right. And the leadership we have.
1: Yeah. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. I think it's like hiring. It just gets so, it gets so difficult. Like you said, you know, sometimes on the sales side, you do more cohorts than anything, but I think it's, it's going back to alignment, which we've talked about a lot. It's like first aligning to What are you trying to optimize for? What's the team you're trying to build? Because I think a lot of people, even in sales, they don't think about like higher product sales process fit. And, you know, we learned that really early on where it was like, hold on a second. Like, unfortunately, a kid right out of school, they're, they're probably fully capable of, you know, talking to, a CMO, you know, of a fortune 500 company, but it's probably not going to be like the thing that we should like hang our hat on. You know, you need folks with more experience to have those conversations if you want to like go quickly, basically. And so I think, I think having that kind of that environment fit, I think is huge. And I don't think enough people think about that.
0: Nope. I don't think they do either. Cause the number of people I've explained this to that look at me like, Oh, you do it like that. And that's why you do it. I'm like, yeah, Their recruiting processes are not like that. They're focused on skills and code challenges and things like that.
1: Do they have a little bit of an epiphany when you say this to them or are they kind of like, oh, that's cute, keep doing that? I think they don't have
0: a tight enough engineering team and process Mm -hmm. in most cases uh, if they're early stage, so sub-50 people, sub-100 people. But if I Mm -hmm. talk to people who are in larger orgs, they're like, yeah, that's a mini version of something we would like to do but they're not able to do it because the recruiting processes were built when it was 50 to 100 people and weren't built this way. But when you talk to like an engineering manager that's hiring, they'll tell you they'd prefer something like this. The funny thing is even when I talk to recruiters about it, they immediately reject it. And they're like, no candidate is going to do your plan before talking to you. And I say, well, in an active recruiting mode, yes, they will. And we know that. And it's actually a better experience for engineers. And in Mm -hmm. a passive mode, I'm not suggesting you hit someone up and be like, Hey, will you do my plan? Right? No, that doesn't make sense. But if they're active and they came in, of course it makes sense. If they're passive and you're reaching out to them, you have to sell them more before they're even willing to do your stuff, you know? So yeah, that makes sense. But like a lot of recruiters are very focused on passive recruiting because that's what they're taught at the larger Mm -hmm. companies and the inbound stuff is more handled through the ATS system and those leads coming in and things happening. So I think it's just a way that we've been getting people to join the company through a more inbound or passive, or sorry, active process, which has led us to the system, which makes sense if you think about funnels and things like that. And then on the passive side, yeah, everyone has to go through this this, no matter what. So at some point, our metric is how many plans were sent back to us because that's really the leading indicator to us hiring a certain percentage of those.
1: Hmm. It's kind of interesting too because... One thing I just thought of when you were saying that is like, I think it's kind of funny because you're trying to find this fit, right? Well, that's that's what you should be trying to find. It's just fit in general. And, and you can define that in a lot of different ways. But when you're going after the passive way, if you find yourself having to sell, it puts a weird kind of like veneer on the entire process, at least in in, in my opinion, or at least in the thought that I'm having right now. And, and the veneer I'm thinking is like, I'm just thinking through, you know, some of the things that we really value, some of the people who've kind of been in that position or, or we've had more like everyone's selling each other, you know, they're selling us on them. We're selling themselves on us or, you know, you get what I'm saying. But the basic idea is like, those have been some of the worst hires, <laughs> And not not because they're bad or anything, it's just the culture fit was just not great or the alignment wasn't there, or you know they thought something that we weren't necessarily as upfront about and not intentionally just like we we were trying to sell. and so I like what I like about your process. I'm trying to get a, a little roundabout way is it's like it's very much this is the thing that probably causes consternation. This is the thing that we find really, really important the environment, and therefore we want to make sure there's that fit like culture can get all over the place because there's different aspects of a culture. Um, and some people optimize or some people are really great at parts and not so great at others, but the environment is probably so much more important than some of these pieces. So yeah, just talking out loud, just strongly, strongly agreeing, at least in the moment here.
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes that companies do is they don't actually have an engineering process that they, that they have defined. And thus they don't even know what why an engineer is successful in their environment Yeah, on the engineering team. And we do. Because we define a process early on on how we want engineering to work. It took us a while to figure out the right process uh, and even create one because most of the time people are, should be just writing code. That's the general thesis, right, on engineering. Mm. What we realize is that most of the time people should be writing code, yes, but before they're writing code, most of the time should be spent on doing diligence on the writing of the code, which we call yeah. planning, right? And, and not every engineer like we've even had converts. Engineers coming in and be like, this is crazy, but okay. Like, I'm in. Yeah, And, and then they come in, and the most skeptical ones. And we've obviously had to convert some through this process who didn't come in with this process too. And by the end of it, of like a few weeks of this or whatever, they're like, okay, I get it. This is just so important. How would we do this with, how would we able be able to ship the right things on time with less QA, less feedback from product, et cetera, unless we actually had the planning going on and had the discussions between product and engineering where, where we found things that were, trade-off worthy right and that's the other thing this process uncovers trade-off worthy items while if you don't do this then you won't have the trade-off discussions about oh this is quick this is slow this has Mm -hmm. these dependencies which makes it slower than it should be blah 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 which are very real product problems today about those trade-offs about infrastructure about capabilities about what's possible in almost every product and like i kind of you know, just like you've been around software for a while, trying to build stuff, and I'm amazed at how complex things have gotten in terms of dependencies and even interfaces with speed issues and why they have the speed issues because we're using all this AWS stuff and this and that. And so, th- this planning process has become like the forefront of our engineering kind of ethos, uh, and that's been like tremendous for us at least because then things are just caught early and trade off discussions are happening properly. So, just to give you more depth. Like, I don't think we'd be able to do this if we didn't have clarity around the environment and what type of engineers, and it's not even type of engineer, but what behaviors are related to success in the environment.
1: That's where I'm bringing to, I think this can apply. And you already said this to a lot of different areas of the business. I think you could break this down for a sales process as well, but it probably wouldn't be planning. It would be, you know, some other variant of, of, of part of the environment. Yeah, it's super interesting. Honestly, I think it comes back to leverage in a lot of ways. I think that a lot of times the advice that we got was built in an environment that was just very different. So, what I'm speaking about is like a lot of the advice around recruiting was it's very similar to sales, plug and chug, get the numbers, do this, do that. And I think it doesn't get you the most leverage. And when you kind of rethink what this looks like, like I'm sure you're getting, you're more quickly identifying high quality candidates with less resources doing a process like this because you thought through, you planned, you know, to kind of bring it back, the thing you're actually doing in this in this process, than if you were, you know, just doing the plug and chug model, which is kind of so traditional. So yeah, I like it. I like the rethinking, I think it's great. Ready to switch gears? Yeah, where do you want to start? Where, what are you fired up about? I want to talk about Microsoft. I love talking about Microsoft. I don't Me think too. there's a single Microsoft product I use except for Excel, but I do like talking about them. Someone asked me to use Skype the other day and I just, I, <laughs> I just, I naturally, it was one of those things where I was, just, I just went, oh, okay. And then as the call was approaching, all of a sudden, like I was just so used to Zoom, all of a sudden the call came up and I was like, oh crap, I got to re-download Skype. I got to remember my username, all these other things. But yeah, that's, that's my little side note on Skype. I actually
0: use Skype a couple times a week and it's with people that are much older than me. Uh, some people are almost <laughs> double my age. And uh, they they like using Skype. Uh, They're not relatives of mine, just old friends that happen to be quite old. Uh, And we use Skype and it works great. And for me, like I'm I'm early adopter of Skype because I've been remote for a long time. Mm -hmm. So the voice calls on Skype were killer back when it was the only way to actually talk to international folks and folks that are far away. And when phone bills were high as a result of some of the yeah. attempts at doing this. So I think Skype was like a lifesaver, to be honest, back then. And uh, there are still people that swear by it because it's just, for some reason, the impression is it's easier than the other tools for, for some of these some of these older folks that at least I talk to. Uh, but definitely it's fallen out of fashion for most of us,
1: right? Yeah. But what do you think about Microsoft, Discord, $10 billion, all that kind of fun stuff? Or, or do you want to talk about Microsoft in general?
0: So there are rumors that they're going to buy Discord for $10 billion right? So I'll just throw my statement down about it.
1: Throw your statement. Official statement breaking here on the <laughs> Tradeoffs podcast.
0: Uh, well, my, my, my opinion, and it's not a statement, sorry. My opinion is that Microsoft is almost drunk on social graph focused products that have a so strong social graph. And I think they are making the right move in identifying companies that are massive, that have social graphs that are strong. I mean, they did mm-hmm. that with LinkedIn and I think they learned a lot from LinkedIn, a lot, a lot. And I don't—I think GitHub might've been first, sorry. So they probably learned a lot from GitHub and LinkedIn, maybe GitHub first, but I would say LinkedIn is the one that would shed that light on you once you started digging into the engineering that's taking place there, the way the system works over there, even more so than GitHub because GitHub by nature has to work the way it does. LinkedIn has a almost not artificial graph, but a graph that was built over time artificially while code has always been about commits and all that good stuff and collaboration, right? So it's a little bit of a different thing, but they're both what I would call basically social graphs of some type. And they saw the power of social graphs with Facebook, of course, because they invested in it early. They sold, but somebody convinced them to invest in it, right? And so Mm -hmm. they invested in it. So I'm sure they had some privy about that. And so then now they're just getting another graph. So I think they're buying graphs. And the funny thing is Discord's graph might even be stronger than Slack's in the high-level outside world. Maybe not as a kind of from an employee and company perspective. And Slack's definitely been slow about their whole Slack Connect thing that I think was obvious years ago to build out, but they had a lot of tech debt that prevented them from building that out. That's my high-level thought. So when you look at Discord's graph and them owning that, especially with all the gaming things they do and all that, oh my God, it's like a perfect fit. For a company that's drunk on graphs, but I wouldn't say drunk in a bad way. I would just say like, they got Mm. it, they get it. They get why these graphs are so powerful and what the potential is in the future of what you can do if you have these multiple graphs. So they have the professional graph with LinkedIn. They have the developer graph and the code graph, depending on how you want to call it. Essentially, it's the open source graph that's massive, but it's the developer graph at the end of the day at GitHub. And these are all graphs for people's things. So, you know, professional uh, graph, developer graph which is a subset of professional but potentially much more lucrative and couldn't fit in linkedin so they have basically professional covered between linkedin github and now this is kind of the consumer social graph that they could buy that is purchasable that is also a messaging product that could even level up their current efforts on on messaging products uh and is kind of fits in the wheelhouse of oh now we have a consumer graph Because right now, if you think about what's missing, the consumer graph is completely missing from their wheelhouse. And Discord is a strong consumer graph that also plays to Microsoft's strengths in gaming. And if you go extrapolate that out, the VR, AR, all those plays built on top of and mixed in with Discord is probably going to be really powerful. And then you have kind of Twitch which is kind of a graph, but it's more like YouTube. So it's more of a content network. So if you, if you debate Discord and Twitch, I think Discord for Microsoft is more valuable. I know Amazon owns Twitch and that's totally cool. But like, I'm just pointing out that like this is a power move, in my opinion, and it's no. a move around graphs. So I know that was longer than a statement, but it was meant to be an opinion. So that's my opinion. Would love to hear your
1: thoughts on it. I think everything you said, I agree with Probably eighty-five percent of it, and the other fifteen, I would just clarify and probably agree with. But I think that the other piece of this is they're buying into a younger audience. So, like, think about your Skype comment before. I think that even Xbox and some of the games, their you know, Mixer was kind of a failure. It's probably still going to actually. I don't know if they shut it down, but it's either limping along or not doing crazy compared to Twitch, obviously. But the Discord audience permeates not just gaming, but the Reddit audience um, is pretty strong on on Discord as well as, um, you know, some of the uh, just younger Gen Z and, you know, kind of millennial crowds. There's a lot of Discords. And I think that for Microsoft, what's been interesting is they have some products that permeate every like generation here. You know, Microsoft Excel has kind of permeated for anyone serious about you know work, right? But I think that what they're doing here is they're jumping some of the waning you know aspects that they've had in terms of age of their customer, and basically jumping to the end um, with Discord, which is interesting. But that's the only thing I would really add on the graph comment. Um, except I think I don't know, some of the consumer graph parts, it's hard because GitHub, with the exception of, you know, some companies that are going, you know, coming at them, you know, they kind of have it. Like they didn't necessarily win, but they have enough spread that it's a win for someone like Microsoft, right? I think Discord is that, but I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that would be like a perfect alternative if that makes sense. Well, that makes sense.
0: I'd say Discord is the one that's the least clear graph that they're buying, because they've already bought two that are just super clear. But the strategic opportunity with Discord's graph and also Discord as an independent com- company versus a company that's juiced by Microsoft, I think that's a very different Discord.
1: Yeah.
0: And that, that's also what kind of comes to mind for me. They're squeezing into the team's territory. Yeah. They're squeezing into the Slack territory. Like right on the edge is those, are those use cases, but it's not the core use case, right? Mm. And I find that super fascinating And so in a way it's like they didn't get Slack because they probably never were going to get Slack based on just the competition between Slack and Microsoft. And I'm sure there's inside baseball there. I don't know, but that. So Salesforce got Slack and you know, Salesforce and Microsoft are constantly on the like competition end when it comes to M&A because Salesforce, I'm sure wanted LinkedIn. That was the rumor. They didn't get it. Microsoft came in and overbid and got it. And now Salesforce is like, okay, cool. Slack can't be independent because of the way the world's shaping up with Microsoft just being on the prowl and attacking like ferociously, frankly. So let's go buy that thing and piss off Microsoft in a good way and build our behemoth. Obviously, Salesforce understands the value of messaging and, and these kind of things since the days of Yammer, right? And Chatter after that and all those things, which, you know, they compete, right? And Microsoft owned Yammer. And uh, Salesforce had their answer with Chatter, right? And so now they have their next answer with Slack. I mean, it all just starts making sense. Yeah. And then you have uh, Brett over there at Salesforce that also, based on his experience, I would say at Facebook and even FriendFeed, which got acquired to Facebook, he understands the power of these graphs. And so we're in. If you if you actually want to kind of boil bullet down, I think we're in the graph wars. And these social graphs are very clear strategic advantages that could be so much more fruitful over time than even we can imagine today. Do like, you? where does GitHub go is where my head is. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn, I think, is like just a standard and it's not going anywhere in both ways where like there's probably not much more it can do uh, except just monetize better and build better monetization products, sales, recruiting, et cetera. But where like Discord can go, especially with gaming, AR, VR and all that, there's tons of growth opportunity there. And GitHub is just infinite based on just how much code there is, right? Like, and there will continue to be, and then developers.
1: This kind of model or the, the graph model that we're kind of talking about, it kind of explains why Square bought title, right? Like, yes, it's exactly why it happened, you know, and, and, and we're all making fun of it. Cause it's like, oh, Jack wants to hang out with Jay-Z. It's like, no, like Cash App is almost like a perfect, like it's, it's perfectly extended by title essentially, which is super interesting. I look at this situation and I go, where does Zoom go? right where where do these function products go and like theoretically zoom has a graph but it's like i don't know it's not it's not connected as much to community right and i know there's a lot of people who use it from a social perspective or they use it from a consumer perspective but it's yeah i just i just worry about products like that and and, and if you think about like gitlab even like gitlab has to kind of you know put the right things on top of you know some of these other tools so it's not necessarily a graph it's more of a function based and i know i'm simplifying there but yeah, it's just it's just interesting. I'm, I'm basically asking the question like, do you have to have a graph to survive at this level, and or multiple graphs, and the answer might be yes. Facebook keeps buying graphs. I just right? have this vision of like, someone buying like PowerPoint slides.
0: <laughs> that's what they're basically doing, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's what everyone's buying. But I mean, they bought Instagram and knew what to do with that graph and knew how it was different than Facebook's. They bought WhatsApp for almost 20 billion, right? Yeah. That's a very expensive graph, but they bought the graph because it's these social connections and the active usage across them that makes it work, right? So I think, yeah, at a certain level, you want to add that to your DNA. So I guess what I'm most impressed with Microsoft is they've added it to their DNA. I haven't found a place where they had it before, except maybe in some of the Xbox stuff, but that's still mm. gaming and by nature of the core value of the products social is a big value but it's not necessarily as powerful of a graph as discord because discord goes much more across games and stuff well xbox kind of does but it's just in the xbox ecosystem discord gets them a lot more so it's almost like they're shoring up a graph and getting it and buying it and willing to spend 10 b's on it because they see the opportunity of locking it in and having it so in a way like these purchases look small when you look at the grand scheme of things even like youtube like there's a graph there but not really it's just a content graph, which is not yeah. quite social graph. There should be, but there isn't. And in a way, that proves that Google hasn't really pushed the DNA on that side, while Microsoft is just buying the DNA across the board right in multiple areas. Because you could even argue that graph expertise is important. Hmm. So Facebook this has is- graph expertise from a consumer standpoint, but not hmm. necessarily from a professional standpoint or a gaming. To bring group.
1: this down like a little bit from the big dogs, like I think this is such a better argument for creating a community within your brand than like any other argument I've heard. Like if you think about it, like just getting into like the graph concepts of like making those connections and capitalizing on those spread and those connections, like you just said content doesn't spread as much as like actual connections. <laughs> And so I I think that's, yeah, that's going to, I'm going to have to noodle on that because that's something that I just realized. I didn't put two and two together until this moment of like, that's a better way to argue for it. And it's also a better way to kind of approach, you know, building a community for your brand. Anyways, talking out loud.
0: Those are good thoughts. I mean, I think when you look at the lower end, then we can dovetail back into Clubhouse, for example, or even Twitter, because those are two independent crafts today. There's more, but like basically just look around which graphs are at scale that have tens of millions of users and probably tens of millions of active users, if not at least a million in Clubhouse's case. Whatever mm-hmm. the numbers are, I don't know, but let's say it's a million um, or even half a million. These are graphs. And and so there's an audio graph, if you want to call it that. that there's a social graph based on audio over at Clubhouse. That's probably a more accurate way to say it. Yeah. Discord's a social graph based on gaming, um, but a strong one because it's where people message and it's where people communicate. So these graphs have to be around some form of, communication between people right otherwise it's not really social and then you know you have twitter as well which is the one that got away for everybody i would say at this point you know it's literally Mm -hmm. the one that got away (laughs) that no one was able to buy before it just blew up but everyone knew that they wanted to do something about it right uh and it's fine now as an independent company but it's probably not going to grow as fast as some of these other ones for
1: i don't want anyone to buy it right now because i'm actually i'm (laughs) i'm starting to get really bullish on twitter (laughs) I'm starting to get really bullish based on some of the moves they're making. I know they can't fix your DMs still or your follower accounts, but I'm still still getting excited.
0: I'm bullish on Twitter either way. I've been bullish since day one just because of how unique it is. And it wasn't about a feature set. It almost feels like an information network that needs to exist no matter what. Yeah. Right. And that's interesting. That's very much like the telephone type of situation that people keep talking about. This is why my complaints about the DMs exist actually, because it's like mm-hmm. if it's truly a communication medium and can replace things we used to do a long time ago, like the phone and stuff like that, which it essentially has in a lot of ways, conference calls, etc. If you want to really go wild, wow, so much opportunity. And with spaces yeah. and stuff, they have a shot at kind of extending their graph to these use cases. Cause that's essentially what happens. You have a graph then you extend it to other use cases. It's Mm. still one graph. And uh, this is kind of how all the other, I mean, a lot of networks have grown on other networks, right? Facebook didn't build the graph off of its own back. It built the graph off of other things like Hotmail, for example, hence the investment from Microsoft, right? And, you know, kind of AOL as well and email, of course. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I think the interesting thing, if I were a consumer investor, which there are people that are way smarter about this stuff than I am and have way more experience is be thinking about those graphs and like whether this company that you're looking at has an opportunity to build a graph with their product and their opportunity and their behaviors they encourage. This is the race. And I think Clubhouse was viewed greatly from that perspective of like, is this a new kind of social graph that can be built on top of the behavior that exists in this product? And the answer is yes there. Now, the question is how big can it get and how fast and how retained are people? Because it can't get big unless people are actually retained, and stuff like that. So I know there's a lot of arguments for and a lot of arguments against Clubhouse. That's not what I'm making here. I think it's interesting because it's yet another graph based on audio content. It doesn't feel like that's existed yet. And for the reasons like that are oriented around how podcasts are so personal in terms of listening. I don't think podcasts have blown out into a graph. So when you think about or blown out into one of these opportunities, more specifically, Spotify might be an exception, but I don't know if a social graph around music actually is as viable as some of these other ones. But these are all just sort of debates and lots of people know graph theory and have worked on these problems before and probably have better context. But from my perspective, the power of these social graphs, as, as I'm calling it, there might even be another name people use, but I think social graph is the one I would use in this case is incredible.
1: I have a lot of thoughts but they're all half formed in my head right now it is kind of interesting how you know like microsoft they've five six x since satya took over i think he's made a ton of just killer decisions and kept them relevant even though like everyone likes to like roll their eyes. like i don't roll my eyes when someone talks about microsoft anymore like i used to i'd be like oh microsoft right and I don't roll my eyes at it anymore, which is kind of really interesting. And I don't really use a lot of their products, but even the perception has has changed a bit. I think about, in that context, I really do think about Salesforce. And the more and more I look at what they're doing and I look at like the product moves they're making, the more and more I get bearish on Salesforce versus someone like a HubSpot. Mainly because I think that when you look at what Microsoft did, Microsoft has been very methodical and of course they've purchased things that didn't work out or didn't pan out. But if you look at kind of the world that they thought was going to exist or did exist, but you know, didn't necessarily get as intense. Like, I don't know if Salesforce is making those moves. Like in the context of our conversation, I think Slack obviously was a good purchase, but it would have been a good purchase by anyone, right? Like, yes, like yes. unless they messed it up, right? And I think Salesforce, like I just, I and frankly, a lot of this is coming from, I've taken a more active role on our sales team for a bit as, as we find some some leadership. And I just wanted to like understand it a little bit more. And I'm in Salesforce every day now, more so than I was before. And it's terrible. Like it's a terrible product. Like it's just not like, it, like I get why it exists. And I get that if you're, a manager or a VP, it's great. But if you're not, if you're, you know, a frontline team member, it's terrible. And like, you're not going to ground up rebuild it. It's obviously super successful. Don't get me wrong. But it's one of those things where I I look at it and I go, this was built and has been probably refactored for the right types of people. But it's it's one of those things that it's, it hasn't been built from a product and UX perspective or refactored from a UX perspective. And I think ultimately that's their golden goose that I just don't know if they've, they have the ability to rethink it or there's probably people screaming internally trying to rethink it and they're not moving and the market's big enough so they can hide behind that. But the other product moves they're making, it's just, they're really good salespeople obviously, but I just, I don't know. I don't think they're a 40, 50 year company, you know, in the same way that, that you know, Microsoft has been. So I don't know, just another thought to, to pull on there, but. I worry about like them. And if I look at HubSpot and some of the moves they're making, they haven't purchased a lot, they just do the building. They have a really great product team and it just gets it just gets interesting to kind of compare some of these these big dogs.
0: I think HubSpot has a really large product team. And I think that some customers are happy, but many are not, if I were to just be like super clear. And there are core pieces of that product that are great, that people love, and they're usually the ones that people are buying. And so they get the most attention. And then all these other features they've added are subpar and customers say that. And so I wouldn't say great product team out of almost any product team on the planet these days, uh, because the challenges are real, especially as you keep trying to add more products. And they've definitely gotten better. And it's like night and day compared to like, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago or whatever it Mm. was. But if you go talk to the customers and the sentiment, yeah, there's a clear sentiment that certain pieces of the product are really great and really useful and even unique and other pieces are just slapped on so that they can say they have it and sell it to the customer. Yeah, but
1: a lot of those features in their defense, they do trend towards great over time, at least in my experience in seeing it. Yeah, and that's the Microsoft move,
0: right? Like have it, put your shot at it, and then make it better over time and be okay with the sentiment while you're doing that. And so Mm -hmm. again- My thing's not criticism. I just want to point out that, like, it's hard to say it's great if customers are dissatisfied and there's enough of them that are dissatisfied. It's also extremely hard to build a great product in version one that customers love when you're HubSpot that has a feature checklist to meet for so many of these verticals and these products, right? Like, early on, people used to say the HubSpot CRM didn't have X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Two quarters later, it had X, Y, and Z. So then people said it doesn't have ABC. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. two, three quarters later, it has ABC. Now, what does this sound like? Microsoft. If you just look at their change logs and the amount of stuff they ship, it's actually incredible. Mm. You can look at it and say, oh, they have so many people. It's not incredible. But like, just look at the shipping cadence and the amount of things they're adding. And I think HubSpot's definitely on that track of like, we're like Microsoft where we want to put our shots out, do that early so we have it, so we can sell it and then go over time, make it better. That's reasonable. But as a buyer, that might not be the company you want to do business with because you're not into that, right? And you care about all the things being great, not just one of them. But they also have heated competition from FreshBooks and and so many other companies now, right? So it's an interesting dilemma. And, you know, this is called product trade-offs, so I thought I'd dovetail into that for a second. I think So I I would say, yes, they're a great product team when you think of it like the Microsoft strategy because that's the one that I seem to see them go after, which you know it's very different than the google strategy so yeah which which might not have a product strategy for new yeah. stuff anymore i don't know can't tell
1: Little they have a lot of labs. Competitor is interesting. Yeah, the lab stuff is interesting, but then they end up not really doing anything against it, right? I, I think when you're in that size, you get... When I worked at Google, this, this is a perfect example. The idea is, is you get you get big eyes and 100 million opportunity isn't interesting. Like, it's not interesting, right? So all these like interesting yeah. products that they could build, it's like, well, it's not ads, right? Well, nothing is going to be ads. <laughs> like, no, nothing is going to be ads. And uh, I don't know, it's interesting. When I was there, there was was a project that that I was working on basically days, nights and weekends and, you know, made Google a ton of money. We started doing an expansion of it, which was really cool, but it it eventually got shut down because, oh, this project made this money, but this other project is going to make this much more money. And it's like, and then everything gets shut down eventually, which is really interesting. But yeah, I think my comments on HubSpot were more in the context of like, Salesforce. Cause I think HubSpot feels like it's trying, Salesforce doesn't feel like it's trying from a product perspective. And, I, and I'm probably completely wrong, but just from, you know, our like the reason we went to Salesforce is because exactly what you said, HubSpot didn't have the things. Now HubSpot has the things and we're like literally just counting down the days till our contract expires for Salesforce and we can make the switch or we may be so ingrained. And this is where Salesforce gets a lot of people for a long time. They get, it gets so ingrained and we're just never going to rip it out because now it would take another big process and all these other things, which, you know, gets annoying. So yeah, it's interesting, man. I, I think reinventing and advancing is really, really hard. And some people buy, some people build probably a combination of the others. And then others, they have, I don't know, ADP. Do you want to talk about this quick? ADP uh, you shared, they have, what do they call it? I have to look this Roll, up. Roll, I think. Yeah. It's all I, all I put was ADP being sassy, but that's not what they call it. Yeah, it's called Roll. You're right. Like basically like payroll, roll. And it's it looks like brand new Y Combinator landing page. And it's a whole new way to payroll. That's what they say on their website. And, and it looks great. Don't get me wrong. Like it's like, oh, cool. New payroll. Looks like a startup. Looks like a startup. Looks Straight like up. a startup. I hope it is a startup. I know they have a labs um unit at ADP. Which Could be is that. Like, great. I actually think, I, I, I don't know. I was going to say something snarky about them and be like, oh, you know. This is the equivalent of dyeing your hair or something like that. But I, I think some of these companies, they realize like they kind of have to kill themselves in order to, you know, continue to survive. They have to, you know, basically go to the advanced thing. And a lot of people complain about ADP. So this is, you know, but they're the one in the market. Like we're on ADP and, and we actually, we, we like it, but it's not like we're in love with it, but they're kind of reinventing. This is probably a stripped down version of it to try to get more people through and almost be the start of the refactor almost, which will be kind of, will be kind of interesting.
0: I think it's it's amazing that companies like ADP that are old and typically considered stodgy that many of us still use, right? Because we need to, uh, even though there are startup replacements. But at the end of the day, it's very similar to Salesforce. Where like, you might use HubSpot CRM, but the second you need X, Y, and Z integration and they don't have it, you go to Salesforce and your sales team and your sales ops people and your sales leaders are like, we know Salesforce, right? right? HubSpot has definitely made inroads, but it's an issue. And so with ADP, I think it, it's almost like they need to have an answer to all those little startups and there's lots of them that are doing what adp does and they decided to go super i would say consumery with that role thing not that it's consumery but it feels like a consumer app that's very different than what you consider the adp brand and i know there's a whole build versus buy versus whatever partner i mean come on like it's it's almost obvious that they should do this the question yeah. is how successful it is it and are they capable of doing Is as a whole? nother are like large enterprises trying to innovate, blah, blah, blah. But like the thing is like I would have never thought of them even dreaming of doing something like this. And now they are actually in it doing it, which kind of goes back to the point of maybe software is just much easier to build than ever before. So building building has become the best first option instead of the last sort of ditch effort
1: think about apple right apple's obviously got a couple more decades but like both of them have focused so much on how to build or doing their way of building you know hubspot's gotten really quick they've gotten a certain quality bar they obsess over it apple obviously just to to the extreme you know obsesses about these types of things and apple doesn't buy a lot of companies (laughs) like it doesn't really buy a lot of companies unless it needs something on the balance sheet or unless it makes sense Um, HubSpot hasn't bought a lot. Right. And I think that that obsession on the product side, it doesn't necessarily pay off very quickly, but it pays off most momentously over time. And I think that that's, that's, what's really powerful. And even Microsoft, which we're talking about, like Microsoft's learned to build stuff, (laughs) you know, they've learned to build things, they've learned to scale things and they've combined it with a pretty good sales team. And, you know, you look at some of these folks, I would compare Oracle to Salesforce the most. They're really, really good operationally. And from a sales perspective, I don't know if they're great from a product perspective. doesn't mean they're bad. It just means I don't know if they're great. So some interesting stuff. I think it was a good episode this week. We talked about hiring frameworks, learned a lot about environmental fit which i thought was really really cool he and i'm going to steal that and use that everywhere please it's uh, environment
0: talk, fit but yes
1: environment well cuz if what? you say
0: environmental fit it implies the environment in a way that environment fit doesn't
1: okay. but you
0: do you, you, you okay. these are free ideas take okay. them away
1: <laughs> i am going to now now I'm going to do environmental fit just because of that I comment. Know. Why do you think I said it? That's how it's going to be. I know, yeah. <laughs> Why do you think, think like, I said it? I don't want you to steal my thing. I want you to add no, a no, to it to No, no,
0: it's because I knew you'd try to mess with it, and you fine, did.
1: Fine, I'm just going to make it That's better. fine. It's not a big deal. You do it you. It's not a big deal. Yeah. So we talked about environment or environmental fit, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> we also talked about graphs um, in the context of Microsoft Hopefully you're potentially buying Discord. I thought that was a really interesting discussion too, just because, I don't know, it's just interesting how to get up the mountain. You have a lot of different companies that take a product route. You have companies that take a sales route. You have products that take a acquire route. Um, and ultimately software is is uh, you know easier and easier to build as discussed by what we ended on, which was talking a little bit about ADP. So with that, hope everyone has a good rest of the week um, or start of your week, I should say. And uh, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on email if you want to chat or want to give any feedback. Uh, we're always craving it. So we'll see you. Peace. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about trade-offs, a podcast from well Recur the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.